belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for today, March 28th, 2021, Palm Sunday, is called A Different Kind of Triumph. The speaker is John Ray, and the location is 2828 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Welcome again to everyone who is listening on the podcast and is going to catch this later. We're really glad you're joining. Mark Twain once wrote, It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Maybe one of the most distinctive things about Grace Church is our commitment to rigorously examining our assumptions when it comes to Scripture. Because we all know what happens when we assume, right? For instance, this is an interesting story I read this week. Soon after scientists came to accept light as a wave, researchers went looking for something they speculatively called the ether. Hypothetical stuff through which light waves were thought to move. The thinking was that water waves are a disturbance in water and sound waves are a disturbance in air. Therefore, light waves must be disturbing something. Years of searching and sophisticated experiments couldn't find it. And theorists worked overtime trying to explain away ether's experimental no show. Then along comes Einstein and his theory of special relativity, relativity that finally cleared things up. The ether wasn't just hard to find. It didn't exist at all. This week, we're going to look at a story that we think we know. I thought I knew it. I've preached it many, many years on this Palm Sunday. And in a way, we're, we construct it in such a way that it creates an ether, something that isn't there. So let's take a look this week and see what really is there and put aside what we think is there. So our text is from Luke. We're going to look at Luke's account of what is known as the triumphal entry. Luke's account is interesting. There's no palm branches. There's no hosannas. In Luke's account. Maybe that's the way it is for all of us this Palm Sunday in a world still reeling from pandemic. Is that we don't have our palm branches. We're not gathered together to shout our hosannas. Well, Jesus comes. Nevertheless, Jesus is here. Whether we're ready or welcoming in a way we're accustomed to or not. Well, starting Luke 19. Chapter 20, uh, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples, telling them, go to the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, just say the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. 
threw their cloaks on the colt and Jesus and had Jesus get on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. Again, we're super familiar with this story. We talked a lot in the teaching team this week about how this seems like a triumphal entry in the true sense. Like all of Jerusalem is happy to see Jesus. Only the bad guys, the Pharisees, are against it. That Jesus, even his proclamation that, hey, the rocks will cry out if the people don't, is somehow tied to this exuberance of spirit that Jesus has, that he's basking in the glory of the praises of the people he's come to. I don't think that's what's happening. I think as we look soberly at this passage, and examine it in the context of who Jesus is, his life, and his ministry, a very different picture is going to emerge. You see, I believe that the manner of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem perfectly reflects his person and agenda. And like everyone else in this story, we so often misunderstand that. The Pharisees misunderstood it. The people who were shouting the praises misunderstood it. The disciples misunderstood it. Let's look at where we misunderstood. Because we must constantly work to get closer to what is true if we are going to walk in that way. You see, when we get this wrong, when we make a fairy tale of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the people's response, we really miss the whole point. And this is a really, really great way to develop really, really bad theology. Well, let's look at this. So Palm Sunday is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly journey onto earth. And his incarnation that was part of a specific time and place. As we said earlier, Luke's narrative has no hosannas, no palm branches, just the religious leaders trying to shut the whole thing down. Well, let's, let's look at what Jesus is doing. There's three things here I think that will help us understand this narrative in a new way. First of all, what is Jesus actually doing as he's coming in? A few years back, Jane and I had the privilege of visiting the Capitolini Museum in Rome. And in one of the rooms, a whole room is dedicated to a Roman triumphal entry. So what we have to understand is that triumphal entries were, were a commonplace thing of those people. Uh, think about the biggest parade you've ever been to and magnify that by a hundredfold. So a Roman triumphal entry would be when the, when the army of Rome went out and was victorious in battle. And when they would come back into Rome, sometimes the procession would take as long as a week. And there would be chariots and they would be carrying the plunder of who they beat. And they would be carrying the, the vanquished soldiers would be coming in often naked, bound, maybe with their eyes gouged out from the, the horror of battle. And then all the prisoners that they captured from the cities of the lands that they took over would be brought in. 
and the and the the winning general would be lauded. He would have a a crown, a laurel crown on, and would be praised, praised the coming kings, the victors. Now, I want you to hold that image in your mind of what a triumphal entry was expected to be. Conquering armies, men in chariots, horses, plunder from conquered people. Do we see any of that in this story? No. We see a wandering itinerant rabbi from Galilee coming into Jerusalem on a foal of a donkey with some poor fisherman's cloaks draped across the road. There's no conquered people. There's no big, strong, burly army coming in. This is something very different. It signals something very different. This scene is almost comic and tragic in the way that it plays off those motifs. Tim said it this way in the teaching meeting, like there's a setup and a psych with this. Like people are expecting Jesus to do something and, and they, they want the Messiah to come. They want the conquering king to come. They think Jesus may be it. They've heard about his miracles. They're ready to give him their affection. They're ready to praise him. And then he almost comes wandering in on a donkey with his ragtag disciples. And they're like, is this, is this a joke? Is this real? Is he gonna, when's he gonna pull the army out? Maybe he's gonna, maybe he's gonna get in this way and then the army's gonna come. But as we know, it doesn't. But we need to be clear here too that Jesus is following a, he is following an imagination that has been set for him in the prophecies of the Psalms. But he's doing it as Jesus does everything in Jesus' own way. He's showing what a true king looks like. He says, you expect this, I will show you this. He is demonstrating for his followers also what the kingdom looks like. He's showing us how we are supposed to be in the world. This is so often missed or overlooked because we're looking for something that fits our narrative of power, success, and triumph. We are constantly search in search of the ether of a king who conquers and lords over and miss the kingdom of one who suffers and serves. Well, so that's what Jesus is doing. How let's look at how he's doing it, right? Well, now, this is putting my own words into it, but something we talk about at Grace a lot is, is the necessity to cultivate an active gospel imagination. Well, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's running from that. You see, his, he has an imagination. Jesus has an imagination that has been formed by psalms and prophecies, empowered by the Spirit, and put into practice by faith. Now, it may sound strange to say that Jesus lived by faith. But we see this testified to time and time again in Scripture. Is that Jesus showed us how to live 
And how we live is by faith. We live by faith, the faith of Jesus and faith in Jesus with this. See, Jesus, Alex brought this up in the meeting this week. Jesus didn't have any guarantees of what was going to happen. He knew he had promises and he had a good idea, but there were no guarantees. If we think of this as just a set piece where Jesus is just going through the motions, that everything was preordained and nothing could change. But that's not living by faith. Yes, we believe God is definitely creating and guiding and leading and making way, but still we have to go through that, not just going through the motions with no will or no opportunity to fail, but we do it by faith. Jesus is doing that here. And as Laura commented in our meeting, she said, this is not the first time that Jesus has been fulfilling the law, but doing it in his own way. All along the way of the Jesus story, we see some people are finding hope. Some people are finding encouragement, inclusion. But when it comes to finally to this, to the entry into the cross, nobody's happy. The disciples aren't happy. His followers aren't. The Pharisees aren't. The Romans aren't. Nobody's happy here. But Jesus is doing what he has to do to show us, likewise, what it's like in the kingdom. Well, and if no one was happy, let's look at that third thing. What was the response? What was the response of the people? You see, he reveals what is in us. He reveals what we're truly looking for when we see that played out in the responses of the people there. The crowds were quite happy to go along and crowd and cry out for a coronation when things looked like they, hey, they might turn around. But when pushback, was encountered, then they quickly cry for a crucifixion. The crowds are swayed. These are the same people, y'all. I think this must have been what drove, had drove so much of Jesus' angst and, and lament as he lamented over Jerusalem, as he knew the very people who were calling to make him king within a matter of days would be calling him crucified. How fickle are our hearts? And how dare we think that we wouldn't do the exact same thing? See, likewise, we create our expectations and we demand God flip it into them. We want a personal savior who gives us a pass on the personal responsibility for our brothers and sisters. We want a God who loves the things and people in ways that we love and hates the things and people in ways that we hate. All this is revealed in the story by how the people responded to it. Yet as Tim noted in our teaching meeting this week, we twist the story into a fairy tale and then build our theology off of it. When we make the passion of Jesus the part of the story that starts today and ends with Easter, the resurrection, and the ascension, into anything else than what it is, we do inestimable damage. When we continue to fail to recognize what we don't know about the story, 
we get every other story wrong. When we make the passion into some kind of performative formula or symbolic sacrifice or ethnic achievement or power over performance, we are engaging with darkened minds, ignorant and blind to the truly life-giving, freedom-making, earth-shattering event that it really is. We must not, we cannot continue down that road. We have to understand the sheer, unvarnished humility and hospitality of Jesus if we are to understand God. And we understand this not intellectually, but we understand this by imitation. We have to likewise practice unvarnished humility and hospitality. It's through this practice that we hope to have all our unhealthy habits transformed, our hard and wayward hearts broken and healed, and our clouded thinking cleared up. This allows us to understand and confess and believe with conviction and sincerity, even if it's always going to be somewhat aspirational. When we allow Jesus to come to come into our individual and collective hearts in the same way that he came into Jerusalem, then we can start to see the kingdom as it is. Well, I want to end with this. N.T. Wright, as he so often does, puts it in such succinct and erudite form. He wrote this in response to the current racial trauma that is being revealed and the reckoning that is being demanded. He wrote this in response to what we are all encountering in this arena. He says, the earliest Christian writings insist that in the Messiah there is neither Jew nor Greek. The book of Revelation envisages Jesus' followers as an uncountable family from every nation, tribe, people, and language. At the climax of his greatest letter, St. Paul urges Christians to welcome one another across the social and ethnic barriers, insisting that the church will thereby function as the advanced sign of God's coming renewal of all creation. And I want to pause here in that quote to say this is what's reflected in the triumphal entry. Jesus refused to come in either as a a rebel leader, tribal, ethnic rebel leader overthrowing the oppressor, or be compromised into the form of the oppressor. Jesus defies all those categories in the way that he comes into Jerusalem, the way that he refuses to admit to, to meet violence with violence or to play by the religious rules which kept one group apart from the other. We see this in the triumphal entry. Well, N.T. Wright goes on. He says, this is, a, this is the three-dimensional meaning of justification by faith. All those who believe in Jesus, rescued by the cross and resurrection and enlivened by the Spirit, are part of the new family. This was and is central to the gospel. It is not peripheral. It is central to justification to the gospel. The church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. 
It was known, and for this reason, seen as both attractive and dangerous. As a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group, gender-blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking for the voices. That is the kingdom that Jesus came to establish that we celebrate today. Not the victory of one ethnic group over another. Not using violence to oppress violent people. But creating a new family through humility, hospitality, sacrifice, and the reconciling of all the things that keep us apart into one new family. Grace Church, this Lent and Easter, how can we do anything less? In this season of new group, new growth, in this, this season of transformation, how can we as a church set our sights below that? Seek to just create this ether of some kind of churchianity that allows us to be comfortable in our separation, our segregation, our wealth. We have to have our minds transformed by Jesus. And this story is a great place to start. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.